About three weeks ago, Amazon reported the top 10 things that people were searching for on their website. Nine of the top 10 things were antiviral cleaning supplies or toilet paper. But number seven on the list was adult puzzles. Normally, Amazon says jigsaw puzzles rank somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 in terms of most searched for items on a week-to-week basis. But as you probably well know, jigsaw puzzles during this pandemic have been in a hugely high demand. You really can rarely find them anymore, or if you can, it's from secondhand vendors that are charging upwards of $60 or more for what was previously a $10 puzzle. And they can charge that, quite frankly, because a lot of people want puzzles. Maybe that's because puzzles are a fun way to engage the brain with a lot more time on our hands, at least for some of us. Maybe it's because puzzles are a welcome distraction with everything else. Maybe it's because puzzles can be done individually or as, as a family. Maybe it's some combination of all of those. But maybe they are exceedingly popular in this moment because of this. You pour out all those puzzle pieces, they scatter across a table, and at first look, it looks impossible. Nothing about the mess of tiny pieces suggests that they can or should come together into any kind of meaningful form, let alone a beautiful one. And I wonder if consciously or unconsciously, many of us lean into those puzzles because as they start to come together, we start to see that order can come from chaos, that that beauty can come from this mess. And I wonder if old-fashioned non-digital puzzles in particular are popular because some part of us wants very much to touch and feel in our bodies that kind of truth coming together. Thomas is one of Jesus' disciples, and while the others are overjoyed that Jesus has risen from the grave and and he's alive, Thomas, we read, he needs to see this truth for himself, and, and he needs to know the truth in his own hands, unless I touch the side of his body. Because at this moment, all Thomas is certain of is this. His friend, his teacher, his Lord has been put upon a cross and died. And with his death, so many of Thomas's hopes for, for a new way, a new kingdom, they have been scattered and irreparably so. It wasn't always this way for Thomas. He's famous as doubting Thomas from this scene. But, but at one point earlier in the Gospel of John, there's this brief story where, where Jesus tells the disciples they need to go back to Judea. And the disciples remind Jesus last time they were in Judea, there were some people there that tried to stone him to death. And still Jesus insists, we need to go back to Judea. And it's Thomas, Thomas of all the disciples who says right then, let us also go that we may die with him. I'm all in. We're all in. Thomas is a passionate follower right here. No no trace of doubt, no sense that even in the face of possible persecution or death, it won't be worth it. That God won't somehow redeem the brokenness. Have you ever known these moments? Growing up, I can remember going to so many church camps, and and after a week of singing and praying and inspirational messages, I was all in. I'm following Jesus. The church, we are going to make a difference in this world for Jesus. And and if God is calling me as part of the church to some far country and, and far corner of that country, so be it. 
You ever known those moments of passionate, inspired faith? So powerful, so invigorating. But it rarely lasts, at least not in that form. Life has thrown Thomas a situation where he cannot easily or readily believe that, that Jesus really lives and, and, and overcomes and is one that can be followed. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, put my hand upon his side, I will not believe. Literally, show me the pieces, put together, alive, complete with the wounds. And I find Thomas's plea refreshing. He's leaning not into the easy pieties or, or right answers. Thomas is calling it like he sees it in the moment, and he doesn't sound so dissimilar from some of the laments that we find in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? I cry by day, but you do not answer. And implied in the psalmist's lament is the question, where are you? Show up. In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky writes, it's not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of the furnace of doubt. Dostoevsky speaks of the kind of faith that is forged when one stands in the midst of the scattered chaotic mess within and without and says, God, if we're going to believe, if we're going to trust, if we're going to lay our lives down in love for you and for neighbor, you got to show us you're real. you got to show up because, because sometimes we feel like Psalm 74 verse 9. We're given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. Thomas sits in this angst for a week, according to our passage. Perhaps you have known this very kind of week or year or decade. Maybe it came about by way of some sort of shattered dream or hope crushed. Perhaps in these recent weeks, some of us have, have felt overwhelmed by all of the scattered pieces. The virus, the economy, the uncertain timelines, the canceled events and graduations and weddings and funerals and what's going to happen with those, our children's education. The way the crisis has accentuated injustices in our society between those with money and those without, those with some sort of recourse and those without. And then, of course, amidst all those scattered pieces, our own sense of inner disorientation and, and maybe something going on in our own family life. Perhaps some of us have felt overwhelmed by all of the pieces, even to the point of openly, openly wondering how or when or, or even if these pieces can come together into something. God, shall you redeem this? Show us. You'd think if Jesus really wanted to prove to Thomas that he's risen and alive and redeeming this world for good, Jesus would show Thomas the front of the puzzle box. Thomas, let me give you a behind-the-scenes glimpse of how God sees all the mess. Cannot you see that all things work for, for the good of those who, who love God? 
Cannot you see that all the pieces, the colorful ones, the gray ones, even the ones with an empty void of nothing but darkness, cannot you see how they all fit together in this this stunning landscape? Wouldn't the perfect antidote to fear and doubt be if you could just see the big picture with all the pieces? Instead, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus does not pull out the cover of the puzzle box and grant Thomas a heavenly glimpse of how it all comes together. Instead, he draws Thomas right into those spaces that have known the most acute forms of pain and shame and woundedness so as to give Thomas hope. It's like he draws Thomas close so that Thomas feels just a couple of the most central puzzle pieces in the thousand pieces of redemption. The first fruits, as Paul puts it, of the new creation puzzle. And so Thomas is allowed to touch just these particular scars in order to be given hope. Why? Ten years ago, I was in an Atlanta softball league. I was playing left field, and the ball was, was hit towards me, and I run towards it, and I dive for the ball, and I, I miss the ball, but I do manage to land squarely on my own left hand with the full force of my body weight, and I break my left hand in three different places, crushing one portion. I would go and eventually have two scars put into my hands during surgery so that three metal plates could permanently be placed in my hands to help heal and hold the hand. Ever since, I've had these two visible scars. And I can't tell you the amount of times I've been, those have been conversation starters. So tell me about your hand. And it happens so often that I am tempted to tell a more heroic story. Right out of the shark's mouth, I pulled that child. But what I've come to realize is that people just want the real story, the clumsy story, the painful story. Uh, so you, you dove on your own hand and, and broke it? Funny how that pathetic reality has opened people to tell me then their own pathetic Clumsy story. So you had to conduct a wedding two days later, pre-surgery, doped up on painkillers with a massive cast? Funny how that imperfect wedding picture has opened others to share of their special occasions that didn't go as planned. So, so you had to do physical therapy for weeks, barely able to move the left hand at all. How was driving, typing, getting dressed. Funny how those parts of the story have opened others to then share stories of their own broken times in their life when things were pretty difficult or uncertain or remain difficult or uncertain. You know, nobody ever asked me about my perfectly good right hand. But the scarred left hand, people lean in 
And when I let them draw near to the truth of those scars, they communicate something broken and therefore relatable. They communicate something awkward and at times difficult and therefore relatable. And they communicate some kind of real healing and therefore genuinely hopeful. It is in the place of scars, the place where pain and weakness and suffering was most acute and the tender healing still fresh. It is to those specific spaces that Jesus draws Thomas near. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaims. This man of once passionate faith then Intense, real doubt now has something altogether more sublime and personal as the scars minister to him. The scars communicate the grievous wounds of sin and death and the journey therein, and they also communicate a love stronger than death, more forgiving even of the worst that sin can deal. How healing it is to touch the scars that tell a painful and true and good story. Now it's true in our passage, Jesus commends the faith of those who who never see the scars upon the resurrected Jesus, but still believe. And yet it cannot, cannot be denied how often God ministers to each of us through the visible body of Christ on earth, particularly through scars. Have you known others to minister to you through their scars? Not their strengths, their perfections, their accolades, their heroism. Have you ever known a renewed sense of hope or courage or love precisely because another risked sharing the scars that testify to having known real pain, real shame, real failure, but then also somehow God's power being perfected Precisely in that weakness. And then what about us? Can we name where some of our scars are? Where some of them are on the body of this church? Where do we point to name the brokenness, the hurts, the cracks, the aches, and those spaces where God's power has somehow nevertheless been perfected precisely therein? Or perhaps there are very real current wounds and gaping holes and reasons for doubt into which we're praying that kind of thing this very day. Just know that if we are currently in that space of of some real wounds, some real pain, some real brokenness, the promise here is not that the wound will go away like it was never there, like it just didn't happen, like we sort of passed by it and kept moving. That's not resurrection. The resurrection promise of Jesus is that love is stronger than sin and death and shall transform the wound into a visible scar that will forever be part of the journey, maybe even a central part of the journey. Indeed, it may well become the conduit through which others recognize Jesus in this world if we're willing to risk sharing. This world sits before a chaotic mess of so many pieces and I think longs to know that some sort of deeper beauty and justice shall be drawn from all of this. And we, as the church, can absolutely hold up scriptures like the cover of a puzzle box and say, look, all things shall be reconciled and redeemed unto a glory we cannot imagine. 
And absolutely, we must hold to that truth, that vision, that hope as the church. But I'm also mindful that, that Jesus draws Thomas to very specific bodily scars to, so as to proclaim hope for this world. And more than that, he breathes upon his disciples. He empowers them for the work that is head ahead. He says, as the Father has sent me, as I have come and ministered to you by way of wounds, so I am sending you in the power of my Holy Spirit. May we know the resurrection breath of God upon our souls this day. May we know that breath healing our wounds and giving us courage to risk sharing our scars, our two pieces of the thousand pieces of God's redemption. Let us go to our God in prayer. Gracious and risen Lord, we give thanks that death did not and does not have the final say. And though sin has done its worst, your love has prevailed. More, we give thanks that by your grace you have breathed your Holy Spirit upon us. The very spirit which raised you from the grave is the spirit which now holds us, keeps us, lives in us and through us, that we might live in love as your body in this world. Filled with your spirit, we offer our prayers on behalf of this wounded world. We pray for the sick and the ailing, the injured and the broken, those who know a physical or, or mental woundedness and ailment that shows no signs of healing unto a scar. May your healing hand be upon their bodies and minds. We pray for those whose souls are broken by their circumstances or their own failings or relapses or a broken relationship. May your healing hand be upon their soul. We pray for those most affected by this pandemic. Those suffering deeply in their lungs, those suffering without work, those suffering because they do need to show up for long hours of work, exposed in concentrated areas of the virus. Those who cannot obtain medical treatment right now. Those suffering from having made impossible decisions. Those without clean water. Those grieving without being able to be alongside loved ones. May your healing and your provision be made especially known to each of these. We pray that you would quicken the day when this nation and all of the nations around the world can safely and fully share life and work and worship again in person with one another. And we pray that however you would bring us back together we would know your resurrection power at work, healing wounds unto scars and raising a new creation of goodness and justice among us that we could not have ever known to even ask for or imagine. We know that you, Jesus, have declared that, that we, your church, are, are sent into the world as you've been sent into the world with compassion and the kind of love that walks with people no matter who they are or where they are. And yet we confess we do not always know how to make that walk happen when we're apart. 
Show us how you would have us love one another in this season. Help us continue to be thoughtful and creative. Help us to be advocates on behalf of those overlooked and marginalized. Help us be the hands and feet and voices of your compassion. And give us courage to show our own scars. May they be conduits through which we share your hope in this world in the coming days. We make our prayer in Jesus' name who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.